and come into the office. Yeah. And in the office, that's, you know, where I really as well recognize those hallucinations or auditory hallucinations because as I always describe, it's like in a concert, the voices were loud, like loud and clear. Whenever I get in trouble with the police, I, I just noticed that my life was going downwards with this resentment. And I didn't want my life to continue going downwards because it had already been down. You know, I wanted to change it to going up. And going up meant I initially wanted to decide that I wanted to work. I wanted to partner up with the police to better outcomes. Hello and welcome to Make and Tame, the podcast Breaking the Sigma. The podcast started off breaking the sigma surrounding my food allergy. However, this year, I want to use this platform to break the stigma of other conditions and topics which are not always well understood. And it's a safe space where the guests open up about their own personal stories and struggles on the way in hopes that their stories will inspire you. If you can do me one massive favour whilst listening to the podcast, make sure to click that follow button. Honestly, it means the world to me. And if you're watching this on YouTube, the episode is out every Wednesday. So make sure to click that subscribe button. Honestly, I appreciate all the support. Let's jump into the podcast. Antonio, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. You're a multi-award winning mental health activist, a campaigner, public speaker, but more importantly, how you're kind of shifting the UK's view and how they address mental ill. So incredible to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Dan. And yeah, it's a great honour to be here. I know it's been long overdue, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. No, honestly, it's incredible to have you on. Obviously, I've been kind of following everything you've been doing online and it's been incredible. Obviously, you're working with the police now, I saw recently. So it's, it's great how the, the campaigns are kind of really kind of raising awareness and doing justice. If we go back to your kind of early years with the guests, I always thought it's quite interesting how they come to early years, kind of joining the dots, looking back of like kind of the work they're doing now. I mean, how was your kind of upbringing? Well, I mean, it was to be honest, I, I think personally it was wasn't a bad upbringing. There was a lot of pressure, um, a lot of expectation, mostly that I set on myself, being part of, you know, the youngest sibling out of, out of five siblings. Um, then being in school and, you know, you being part of gifted and talented group, being in the top sets, but I wasn't in those classes with my community. I was in those classes with other communities. And so I was sort of isolated in that sense in terms of, Here's a group of minority students. Here is Antonio not really fitting in with what the expectations of that minority group. So I think all of that made my upbringing quite, quite pressured, pressurizing, pressured, whichever the word is, because I then started to isolate myself from everyone and started to make those expectations people had of me do or die kind of thing, you know. And when being in top sets and stuff and being the youngest and when it came to edu- academic academia, there was people who would be encouraging me in, because they'd see me in top set. You know, I go home, I do my homework within yeah. like, getting it. If I didn't have homework, I'd go and practice out, uh, uh, re- um, copy out a book because I wanted to improve my handwriting. So all of that, which looked like dedication, determination to others, then was met with what should have been encouragement and motivation because people would say you know oh, Antonio's so smart he's going to go on to be a doctor and all, or all these other things and so to me it became do or die I had to become mm. that or this that people expected of me because if I didn't I'd be letting down my, my siblings I'd be letting down my parents I'd be letting down my teachers I'd be letting down basically the whole world and that meant you know maybe I might not be accepted. Did that did that kind of like work effort then come along because of the the pressures like you say so you obviously you was like working yourself to the bone because you just felt you had this like overwhelming pressure like on your shoulders all the time yeah definitely um as I was saying some things that should have been encouragement and motivation were just pressure and expectation for me unhealthy pressure and expectation you know when sometimes people have good intentions when they're saying things like he's so smart he's going to be a doctor and so forth but because I lacked the communication or the, the ability to express my feelings and thoughts, it meant that I just took that on and didn't challenge that. You know, I didn't tell people I wanted to play football. It just became my reality, other people's expectation. Yeah. 
I mean, what what did your other brothers do as well? Was it was it did they all go on to do really well as well? Because imagine if I had like an old, older sibling and they've all like gone on done really well for themselves. And there's that there's kind of that pressure as well. Obviously, they've set like a, a bar or expectation. Um, yeah, uh, and I think in all respects, there wasn't really a bar that I was working to or a bar that was set by my elder siblings. I think it was a bar that I set myself because there was no bar that had mm. been set, you know? So the kind of way of thinking of it is when there's no responsibility given to you, you assume responsibility. But when there is a responsibility given to you, you stick to that responsibility. For me, it felt like a, a free reign because, you know, not that my brothers didn't do well, but they didn't really follow that traditional route of, um, you know, uh, primary school, high school, college, university. Yeah. So I was really the only one. Well, yeah, I'd say I, really, I was the only really, really one at the time that was really um, invested in. Yeah, and I mean, did from did I mean, did you did your parents or did did your mum, for example, like did they kind of put a, like a pressure on like because they they saw that obviously you you doing well, you was a, a model student, you could say, and that you was getting yeah. the good grades. Did that make things even worse in a sense? Like, because like obviously you, you're a really intelligent guy. You're a model student. You're getting the grades, and they're like, we can see where Antonio could go, like that kind of path in life. No, I, I no honestly, no. My parents never really gave that impression. I think again because there was nothing actually clarified. I took it upon myself. So a lot of it was me telling myself I had almost had to be the best of and in everything and every and in everything and anything for my parents to not even hold any sort of disappointment, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, only like when I was a young adult, late teenager, my dad told me what he wanted from me in terms of a career and stuff. My mom never really, no, I never really got that pressure from them. I think it was just a subconscious thing that I set myself, you know. I didn't want to even explore them being disappointed. So to me it was I had to be at the best all the time. Did you have that from a young age, would you say? That's like um, quite quite early. Like or was there anything which made you feel like that? For example, like like if I was honest, like when I was growing up like there was always like, Dan is going to get all these. Like, I remember in school, I wasn't clever enough to play the violin and they wouldn't let me play the violin. And there's like, the kids who don't get good grades can only play the flute. And there's like, when I got to school, they're like, oh, Dan's going to get all these. And that kind of spurred me on to like prove people wrong. Yeah. I mean, was there anything in your life which which made you feel that way where you're like, and made you have that precious, like, you know what, I, I, I want to do really, really well? I think it was just at the time my own personal insecurities. Mm. Uh, first and foremost, being a young black male. And second of all, I had really strong insecurities about things like my height, how I appeared to others. And at the time where I didn't recognise also that I was experiencing auditory hallucinations, I think those were also taking a toll in terms of how I managed expectation pressure, how I managed my outlook mm. to others how I was perceived by others. All of these things, I think, created a, a, a ratatouille of, of unhealthy unhealthy thinking. Because, you know, if, if I tried to just give you an example, I was insecure about my height at the time because I'm, I, was, I, I am quite short. I'm only five foot four. Um, so I always used that as a, I always saw that, sorry, as a weakness, a vulnerability. And so to sort of counter that, I had to always be on top of things or I had to, you know, always defend myself. And so kind of a way to sh to hide away from that those insecurities would be to make up for those insecurities. Mm -hmm. And that would be, I guess, by, you know, exceeding people's standards, even when standards haven't been set, um, as you said, by my parents. Or, you know, just being the best because it's sim it, simply being the best meant there's no room for judgment, no room for, you know, criticism. That's what it seemed like to me. So it was just about being accepted. Um, it's about being seen, um, especially those insecurities. So yeah, you know, I don't, you know, I don't really think it came from my household directly. I think it was something that was indirectly 
um, in my put in my mind because I just assumed I'm the youngest and, you know, my other brothers haven't done this and, you know, my parents are, you know, not, not from the greatest income and so I want to give them the best and so forth, so forth. So I think all of that is what created, you know, that yeah. unhealthy behaviour. Yeah, I can imagine, obviously, like, obviously experiencing that and, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the podcast, it was on the day of the CEO and it was with um, Richard Habend and he was talking about, obviously, the Top Gear presenter and he was talking about with his height as well, that made him want to like work harder or prove themselves. So it's interesting how you have them kind of external pressures. I mean, when did it get to a point, if you kind of look back now where you was like, where you obviously getting burnt out, obviously, yeah. I know there's, there's, there's a point where you was having, you was having seizures as well due to the stress. Mm, yeah, I you know. So as I said, you know, I, whenever I had homework, I'd go back and do it on the same day. If I didn't have homework, I'd copy our book to improve my handwriting. That became a habit, that sort of work ethic, as you said. Um, and that also became a priority on top of my own health to me. So I remember we was going through, we were approaching GCSEs and I remember I wanted to go into uh, the sixth form college called St. Dominic Sixth Form College because they were rated the third best sixth form college in, in the country. So I was like, you know, if I make it into the sixth form college, I'll definitely be seen in a, in high regard. And, you know, things, my insecurities won't matter as much to others. So I worked really hard to get the grades needed because to get into the sixth form college, you needed a specific amount of great um, GCSEs at quite a high level. And so I remember... Um, during that GCSE period, I was really stressed out, like extremely stressed out because of one, the fear of failing, but two, also just, you know, just the anxiety of going through GCSEs, I guess. But with that stress that I was experiencing, because well, at this point I had already been, I'd already been referred to a childless and mental health service due to a conversation I had, which was perceived as a, um odd behaviour. But, I didn't know how to illustrate what was going on. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't even know, you know, the way I just say to, to to people, my psychiatrist would be, boys will be boys, kids will be kids. Right? I don't believe I have any mental illness. So picture it on this side as that part of discovery happening. And then on this side of things is me trying to sort of battle through GCSEs. All of that together meant that I started experiencing physical symptoms of uh, pseudo seizures, which is an outdated term now. I believe now the term is psychogenic um, seizures. Those meant that I would be constantly in and out of hospital because of the seizure I'd be having during college. Um, it also meant that I missed um, some of my G some of my exams, which all together again you can imagine creates another pressure because it's like I missed my exam. I now you know. I'm I'm about to fail basically, so I believe at that point where my my seizures were trying were being addressed and my mental health was on a discovery. My neurologist at the time, fortunately, had passed GCSEs. I, I got my all my GCSEs. And I got into sixth form college. So now at this point, we're at sixth form college, but I'm still having the seizures um, because now I'm studying biology, chemistry, psychology, and philosophy all on the basis of someone once said. Antonio's going to go on to be a doctor. So now I took it upon myself to go and be a doctor. Um, so, you know, so yeah, I was having these seizures and my neurologist prescribed me a medication to try counter the seizures, anti-epileptic um, medication. But what wasn't understood was that at that time I was having those seizures and also discovering why I was having those seizures along with why I was having this behaviour. There was a miscommunication or failure to communicate between my neurologist and my psychiatrist, because my my neurologist who prescribed me as anti-epileptic, the side effects were that it enhanced mental health, um, mental health symptoms. It enhanced suicidal ideations and so forth. And so, when I had started taking that medication, the anti-epileptic, I was already struggling with my mental health, which meant together they just spiraled into, you know, the want to actually act out on my thoughts and not be around and not have to deal with the unexpected pressure, the unexpected expectation, the fear of failure, 
you know, all these things, it just came down to, well, the solution is if you can't get rid of the problem, take yourself out of the problem. And at the time that was, that seemed fair, but it, you know, it, it wasn't. And I, I, I want to just clarify that here now, that it wasn't the best thought I had. And I'm glad it wasn't something that I continued with because I'm proud of who I am today. But yeah, you know, that's when it happened. And, and it was just this whole thing of academic and fear of failing to then now, you know, physical, physical health getting in the way of it as well. And then this medication that just enhanced my, those negative feelings to then the point where, you know, I, I, I walked out of my house with the plan set and the determination to act it out. The fear of failing, I think at that age as well, it is so high. And I don't think like, when I went for the GCSEs, I still think for me, that was my most stressful part of my life. Because like you say, there's, there's so much pressure if you fail then that's it, your life is over, you're not going to go on to achieve all these incredible things. And I also think like there's just not enough support whatsoever for these teenagers going through these experiences of the exams because, like you say, you, you feel like you, the, the world is on your shoulder and if you don't get the grades, then, like you say, you can't get into the college or you're not going to get that job. And it's, I mean, you mentioned there a lot of like external pressures in regards to obviously like someone obviously wanted you to become a doctor. When when did you when did you kind of find what that expectation expectation is for yourself or what you wanted rather than what someone else wanted? Before I answer that question, I just want to go back to what you said about the pressure in, in yeah. school. And you know, it's very true. Like I think that was one thing that was very neglected. It's the fact that, you know, they all they saw in school all that was seen was this hard work and determined um um, student, there was no consideration to actually is he putting too much pressure on himself, or there was no conversation even of mental illness, right? Yeah, I remember even my head of year at the time when I when he when they got sent um, questionnaires by my um, mental health service to find out what my behaviours was like, they would say to me, oh, you know, they're filling it out all perfect, so I don't get involved in that sort of um, that sort of I don't know, I guess that service, but yeah. that wasn't what was actually helpful. You know, what would been helpful is to actually have been honest and and really have that conversation. I don't think there was any contingency for someone like me who was suffering with physical symptoms, but also mental symptoms at a time of GCSE. There was no no support, actually. There was none. I remember there being none. I felt very alone, um, very isolated. Yeah, it, it was just a matter of basically getting to the mentality of just get the job, get the task done, not complain about the task. So, yeah, I just really wanted to bring that up, that, you know, there was no plan at that time where I was going for GCSEs and struggling both physically and, and mentally, but there was no support at all in school to deal with that. And I, yeah, I just had to put myself in that mentality of get the task done and complain about the task because you're only delaying yourself. Now, It'd be interesting to see if there's like support now for, for kids going through these exams. I don't know yeah. if he is, but like, it's, like you well, say, it's I, I, you know, pressure. But, but, yeah, no, but I mean, the only thing I can I can vouch on is is the charities that I work with, and so like um, youth mental health charity beyond they they provide schools with resources to support their students with with um, mental health, um, especially uh, I believe key stage one to key stage four students. Um, don't quote me on that, but it's primary school to high um, secondary school children. They offer support to to schools um, with grants um, and to gain resources to support their students. So you know, being in the in the, in the, what I'm trying to say is be being in the in this in the um, realm. I kind of see where support is now trying to be given and where it, it, it is being noticed that it's it's important to have support within schools. But whether that's you know a national thing, whether it's being done enough, I don't know. But it's always encouraging to see some. Um, improvement. So yeah, that was just to answer that. But to come back to your initial question, my my moment came from going into a psychiatric unit. That's what really changed everything for me. I think in the psychiatric unit, I learned to accept my mental illness. I learned to accept mental health and others as well. I learned to just, you know, acknowledge it, that it was real. It wasn't the Batman and the Joker. It wasn't kids will be kids or, you know, boys will be boys. There was a lot of similarities in our experiences, even though our experiences were very subjective. We all felt the same at some point. So going through that experience, I, you know, gave myself the idea to come out of the the psychiatric unit to study psychology because 
as we all know, knowledge is power. Yeah. So that was really influenced me to then come out and follow my own dream, um, going through it and just seeing others going through it. That's what really gave me my moment. I also really, I always have to mention it. One time, you know, I was I was in a psychiatric unit and I got a call from a friend, a very close friend of mine, and we were talking about my care. And it, you know, at this point, I'd been in uh, in and out of unit so much that he was just telling me, you know, he he just broke. He said it to me on the phone there, and then he said, "Oh, Antonio, you've got to start taking lead of your own care. You've got to stop letting doctors tell you what's best for you, and tell them what what you know is best for you because you know yourself best. You've had enough experience now. You've been." through this before, you can't just not tell them what you think is best. You can't just let them do what is best because it's not as easy as physical health, right? They can't really see the bloods and they can't really see the scans and stuff. So you got it's a matter of your self-reporting and you can take lead once you start to really communicate. So those two moments is when I really started to take lead on my own health, my own mm. ambitions, um, my own wants and needs. Um, I learned to really put I before them. What was your thoughts going into the psychiatric unit? I mean, did you have like some kind of like thoughts going into it? Oh, what you thought it was going to involve or what the people was going to be like? That? Yeah, I mean, so first and foremost, I thought, I didn't even know there were different hospitals for um, psychiatric patients. I thought when I had hospital, I just thought, you know, same thing as a general hospital bed, nurses, and so forth. But I remember we were packing our bags and we were driving on the way there. The first time we sort of went through like this long forest, like a five minute drive through the forest. And then there was just this isolated, massive building. And from the outside, the building looked lovely. Like it looked great. I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. This is going to be like yeah. a proper, you know, getaway sort Break. of thing. Yeah. And, yeah, like it, it actually looked like a mansion. I thought, wow, this is mad. Yeah. So much for this hospital, you know. So anyway, then we got in. Uh, you know, the reception was still it still looked quite fancy, still quite looked look quite luxurious. I was still convinced I was here for a getaway. Um, but then you we went up these stairs and then all of a sudden there were like fire fire exit doors with um, you know, the magnetic locks and stuff and all oh, of yeah. this and know being searched and stuff like that. and that's when i started to get confused um was it scary it was, oh, yeah it was it was it was yeah it was because you know once like, pretty much anxiety is the fear of the unknown right and to me i was calm because i thought i knew what i was going into so once i figured out that i didn't know what i was going into that's when i became fearful because i you know yeah, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I became scared, which quickly led into frustration the longer I was there because it was like on section, you couldn't leave the ward you was on. The, you couldn't leave the building you were in. You could only leave your room to the corridor, to the kitchen, to the common room. You couldn't do much else. So frustration kicked in because I felt like I was trapped, you know. Mm. Then quickly after that, um, and it's a speedy time, man. quickly after that, I just had to accept that I was there and I learned that fighting against your recovery, no one was going to support that. But really engaging with your recovery, that's where everyone was really going to push you. And so I started to channel my frustration into, you know, well, what can I do better? What, what, what can I do? How can I help myself sort of thing? Start to talk to patients more, to learn about their experiences, start to be out of my room or um, engaging in activities. And I think, after that, people, the staff started to realise that he really wants to, you know, get out of here. And they started to help me and really encourage me. I had a personal HCA who would come in and do some spoken words with me in my room. Mm. Um, the manager who would come and see me and say to me, you know, you're from there, he'd say you're an inspiration. Like, you know, you don't deserve to be here. You need to work on, on, on your recovery. And then the other patients who, my biggest lesson in a psychiatric unit that I tell everyone is that, you know, sometimes the cup isn't empty. We're just oblivious to what's being poured out of that cup because those patients who I would say had been through worse experiences than me were, you know, in worse mindsets than me, respectfully. And, you know, were there longer than me, put aside all of, they put aside all of that. They put aside all those struggles to sort of say to me, you've not even lost your light bulb. You just had the switch turned off. We can turn it back on for you. That's what they were doing for me. You know, they were telling me. That's amazing, yeah. 
you don't deserve to be here. You need to be out in the world, changing the world. We see so much in you, you know. It was like all their faith in themselves were taken away, but they were putting it into me. Um, and I guess at that point, you could say, you know, maybe there was an element also of expectation and pressure in that, but I got to be able to do things at my own pace, which was really helpful. I got to really decide, you know, how long it'll take, you know, what, how fast I go at it as well. Um, it must be amazing that, like, when they was, like, saying that, because I know you've you've spoke earlier on, on, like, a different podcast, actually, where you spoke about when you got there, you was like, I shouldn't be here. Yeah. And I like say that they were so understanding. And if anything, like, like you say, they gave you the self-belief that, look, yeah, you shouldn't be here, but when you get on the outside, like, look, you can help so many different people. Yeah, 100%. 100%. That, that, yeah, that really humbled me down. That's why, why I said I learned to accept mental health in others because mental health doesn't look like what I thought it did, which I, before any knowledge, I thought it was the Joker, you know, how the Joker would act. That's all I, I thought was mental illness. So mm. when I saw them and I saw, these are just normal people, you know, they're just like me. They, they, they still laugh, they still smile, they still eat, you know, they still sleep. It was just like, I've completely had the wrong interpretation um, mm. of mental illness. And that's why I wanted to, I was really dedicated to come out to learn about it because it was like, what I know isn't what I should know. Um, but yeah, no, they really, yeah, they really, the patients, the staff really pushed me towards it. But only once I came to that realisation, that epiphany that, you know, I did want to get better. Some how, people, how, how long was you there in the end? Uh, two years, two years um, in and out of, of um a psychiatric unit and that was firstly I a uh, child adolescent psychiatric unit then moved on to an adult um psychiatric unit because I think when I first yeah when I first went in I was 16 and from what I remember I don't know if it's changed now but at the time you would only go into adult after 18 I believe or yeah after 18 so I was there being one of the oldest males in the ward with other patients who were as young as 12, as young as 11. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was, and you could really, without being in that state of mental illness, you could really see the disparity within mental illness because most of the patients were, first of all, female. Most of them were from, it was, there wasn't really diversity within the, the wards. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you could, you could really tell some of them, the, yeah disparities of mental illness mental health in terms of in terms of diversity what ethnics were the people in there mostly mostly white patients were were, yeah. were in there um I, there was also there was someone there was a patient who was autistic as well and you know there's a big argument on, on autistic people being sectioned um and, yeah. and kept in psychiatric units so there was yeah i had a whole i had a whole insight of it you know and then every time i look back on it that's what really inspires what I want to change in my work now because it's hard to notice when you're in it. Mm. When you look back on it, you look at it and think, I was the only boy, first and foremost. Why is that? Is it because boys don't get mental illness? No, you know, of course not. And then I was the only black boy. Why is that? Do black boys not get mental illness? No, of course not. Of course they do, you know. And then, well, how come there are people so, as young as so, as, as so, you know, why is that happen? Well, you know, it's all these things really crossed my mind as questions yeah. and I just had to find the answers for them and the solution yeah because I, I had Chuck on the podcast and he, he got sectioned and mm. he talks about like he, he, for him it was like I, was, I wasn't aware or I didn't know how long I was going to be there for I mean that, yeah. that I think that must be quite scary like if someone does get sectioned it's like there's no really time frame is it really until they feel like that's, you're ready to get out yeah that's the one that's the one thing about it I guess because <clears throat> there was a <clears throat> like a joke a phrase or statement whatever you want to call it that they had in the psychiatric unit that would be welcome to the so-and-so unit where you have a one-way ticket in and no 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 return ticket out that's what they would say because yeah you could you could be told you'd be there for two weeks and end up being there for two years you know it Scary. and then yeah. yeah and even speaking to mates that i had that had been through the prison prison system, they would they and also had also experienced the, the psychiatry. And they would say to me they'd rather be in prison because at least in prison they know when they're getting out, right? They can gear up for that moment when they actually know this is when they're getting out. 
Whereas a psychiatric unit, you're there indefinitely until someone else thinks you're 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 decent enough to come out into the world. So it's not even you know a date had been set from before you went in. It's until someone else's opinion, someone else's perspective, thinks it, it's okay for you to be out in the real world. So you know you can imagine how that can be met. Sometimes people are frustrated and are just mm. sort of wanting to get out, but are, you know I don't know banging out. They're not going to be let out. They're going to be kept longer because to that perspective of the consultant, they're not well enough. But really, they're just, you know, they could just be frustrated. It's a normal thing to have feelings and emotions, especially in that place. But yeah, it's it's very difficult because a lot of it from beginning to end is perspective and self-reported. And, you know, sometimes that can be messed with if someone doesn't know how to illustrate what's going on or someone doesn't know how to really um, advocate for themselves. And I think being sectioned as well, like, um, sorry, got to go back to what Shocker said as well. Is like everyone's like one far away from mm. that kind of madness, and it really kind of, like obviously, like struck a nerve because I don't know. You just don't. I don't know. Like before speaking to people like yourself and and others, like you, you, it never crosses your mind of like what would it feel like to be mm. sectioned. But I mean, like you say, it can, it can literally happen to anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know what? Do you know what? Me and Shock are really good friends and I really appreciate his yeah. experience because it's very similar to mine. And I looked at him as a, a, quite a role model, actually. And, be, you know, when he, and he's one, in part of his story, he says that I, one of the doctors, I think it was, finally said to him, look, I'm, look, you've been here so many times. You don't want to keep getting sectioned. Um, I don't want to carry on. I can't remember word by word how the conversation went, but I remember the principle of that, which was, the doctor was telling him, you know, to challenge himself to not be sectioned again. And I remember also being sectioned became customary to me. It became a habit because when I was sectioned, I was fed. I was told when to clean. I was told when to do this. I didn't have to worry about any problems. I was cushioned from reality and that felt mm. great. But then I remember one day my care corner also said to me, you know, it's easy to run into the hospital every time you feel down. But if you keep running into the hospital, you'll never actually learn how to deal with situations in the real world. So whenever you're met with something, your your answer will be hospital, but that can't be because then you'll never progress. And after having that conversation, being told that that's when I really put into my mind that if you want to, if you want to change, you can change, but it starts with the thought and then the feeling and then the behavior and then the action. It doesn't start with the action. It starts with the thought that then leads to the feeling and then leads to the behavior and then the action. So, you know, these triggers, these reminders is what really saved my my mentality, uh, my resilience, I guess, you know. Um, yeah. yeah it's very it, easy. It's very easy for people to give up on me as well as I give up, I give up for myself. But it's really nice, yeah, to have other people believe in you. So that's also encouraging. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting where you said, like, like I said, it all comes down to that far and, like, like you say, you can get quite comfortable. Like say, you you getting fed. You know what I mean? There's there's a bed, and it, and, it, and I've got a podcast actually tomorrow with a an ex prisoner, and I've had on a, another one on the podcast before called Mickey Dax, and it's kind of like that vicious cycle with with um, people which go to prison. Like when they yeah. get out, they because they've they've had all the responsibilities taken away from them when they're in prison because they get fed, that everything's there yeah. for them. When they get out into the real world, like they really struggle. I can imagine there's there's lots of similarities in regards to people which have been sectioned. When you get back onto the real world, like it's a massive shock because you know what I mean. You've got to do everything yourself again. So I imagine there's quite a lot of similarities there, where yeah, you know what I mean. There's a lot of pressures. Like. You know what, when, what people don't notice is that when you leave the unit or even prison physically, you don't necessarily leave them at the same time mentally. You know, and sometimes that comes out as social anxiety or other behaviours, but it's very easy to just see someone discharge, be so happy for them and, you know, think the world's back to normal for them, reality's back to normal for them, but it's not because you still have um, remnants of being in the psychiatric unit. So mentally you're still there. You might wake up and still think, you know, there's someone there in, and watching you still sleeping. And, you know, you might wake up sometimes and think, actually, I can't get out of the house because I'm still on section, but you're not. You know, yeah. so yeah, these things. It's it, it's 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 what I'm saying is it's very. There's more than what that to to it than what the eye meets. You know, someone's back in the world physically doesn't mean they're back in the world mentally. Um, 
And it was, yeah, it was hard adjusting. It was hard adapting. It was hard going back to college as well. Um, I can imagine. And it was, is, is, is that the point of life where you kind of diagnose with schizophrenia when you are on like kind of personality disorder? That was when you was kind of a teenager. Well, I actually don't know. Um, I know is that at some point as a teenager, because the, the unfortunate thing is as a child, adolescent patient, you don't get told the same amount of details your parents do. So I remember, you know, when we had assessments, I would have assessment with my parents in the room, then I'd have an assessment without my parents in the room, and then my parents would do it, would have the assessment without me in the room. And so I only actually found out my diagnosis when I think I requested my records, my patient records. Um, and then I saw it there and I started asking my, my parents and they were like, yeah, they knew about this, they knew about this. And I was like, I didn't know any of this. Like, you know, it wasn't, when I saw my patient record, it wasn't a straightforward schizophrenia. There was polymorphic this, there was oh, wow. so-and-so this and this and that. And, you know, so many, diff- so many different words and phrases. I was like, I had no idea what was going on. And then eventually saw, you know, uh, undifferentiated schizophrenia um, and emotional instead of personality disorder and actually now a new more recent um, diagnosis of generalised anxiety disorder but no I don't know specifically when I was diagnosed I didn't I wasn't told like you know this is what your diagnosis is I was I had to find out myself later on as an adult yeah I mean going through I mean what in terms of like, like uni and obviously when, when you kind of got through college and kind of gone to uni, you've kind of spoke about obviously like taking a break with the pressures. Did did everything what happened at school kind of come back and kind of again in, the, in, that, in that moment where, where you're like, this feels like it's getting a bit overwhelming again? Yeah, you'd think that, you know, once you've gone through that experience, you'd learn yeah. to manage your pressures and expectations and, you've re- and you prioritise that because that's what sent you to a really bad place. But I guess I still haven't fully worked out the mechanics of pressure and expectation, but I have been able to work out some mechanisms of coping um, and managing. But yeah, there's there's always been, there always, I hope not always, but there has always been still that element of pressure and expectation even coming out. Yeah, you know, I did jump the gun. I went to um, study in college to get my UGAS points, but after that I went, I went and chose to go to uni in Hull, which is, you know, five hours up north, just as I've been discharged from hospital and spent, you know, a lot of time isolated. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I jumped the gun because what I saw was they had a, a fast track um, into doc, into psycho, being a fast track doctorate into psychology, sorry. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I want to do this because I want to be the doc, I want to be a doctor or, you know, I want to be a therapist and I want to help out in psychology like that. But it still wasn't putting my health first. It was now the need of what I set myself coming out of being discharged from the hospital and achieving that. So I've had to constantly through the years learn to slow things down. And I learned to come to love the story of the hare and the tortoise because of that. Because yeah. the, to- the tortoise teaches ta- has taught me to take things step by step, you know, take your time with it because you can still reach the finish line, take, you know, a slower pace. So yeah, you know, I came out, I then came out of that. that I think I need yeah. to give that a read because yeah. I think, <laughs> like, honestly, like, I'm always like, I want this, like, I want to do it now. Like, and like, it's, it's mm. like, even like with, with this, with this podcast, I, I've, I think I've, I've said on maybe another episode, but like you, you want it to be, you want it to raise awareness. You want it to break stigma, but like more so, like you want it to do well. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. it's, it's only like the top three percent of podcasts which do like really well. You could look at like, for example, like the Diary of the CEO, super successful mm. podcast. Like, does extremely well, but he's got a team of thirty people. He mm. creates over a hundred different thumbnails for each episode and tests them to see which one does well. There's like. I'm a one-person band. Like you can't compare yourself to like the top one exactly. percent of podcasts and be like, I want to be exactly. that successful because it's very hard and it's like com- compare yourself of where you want and where you want to be, kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, and that's that, that's the thing. That's why, yeah, like I I had a lot of time to think in psychiatry, you know, even up to now, I had a lot of time to think. I'm, my HCAs would call me the thinker because they'd always come in and find me just 
sat in that thinking position thinking and mm. sometimes they come in and be like try not to think so much today and I'm like can I not think today I'm human but yeah. um you know all of that thinking really gave way to these things to consideration to these things yeah. you know it's actually slow down a bit first and foremost and actually don't compare yourself to others how can you can how can you a five foot five foot four person compare yourself to someone doing something at six foot two you know, it just doesn't make sense. It's not mm. reality. And I, I learned that through CBT as well with different, with diff, various different, um, various different therapists who would teach me to set um, more realistic expectation. By realistic, it doesn't mean that you can't be ambitious. It just means you take it step by step because the higher the expectation, the bigger the drop. And that's what people don't notice. You know, you're aiming for here, but you don't see that when you're here, you can also come back down this far. So you really want to take it step by step. And then things like, you know, bouncing back. You don't have to bounce back. You're a human. You're not a bouncing ball. You know, you can just take the steps back up kind of thing, you know. Mm. And then recognising as well that it's harder to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. All these things in life, when you're learning to not take advice and opinion so literal because it actually is someone else's experience that you're that is just being... Sh- um, shed on you but actually what you need to do is take what matters to you from that experience or what is relevant from that experience to yourself you know there's no point talking about marriage when I'm six years old it won't really mean anything it'll just be taking up unnecessary thought so having to all really think these things through and meticulous is what became my coping strategy and and my mechanisms towards not overwhelming myself, you know, not looking too much at what others want of me and what I want of myself. And to take responsibility means to start saying I in situations. So, you know, okay, maybe that person there came at you aggressively, but what can I do as a, as myself to change that rather than to add to that? Because at the end of the day, you, I'm part of the provocation if I react, you know, I'm implicit to that. And I have to really believe that I'm being harmed to be harmed. Otherwise, I can really carry on with my day. You know, I know that there's there's this there's the there's there's the feeling of depression that doesn't have to lead to the diagnosis of depression. You will feel depressed at some point, but in that moment, tell yourself what my psychiatrist would tell me. Challenge yourself because you don't have to sit there and ponder on that emotion. You can make yourself, you know, feel better. You don't have to sit there with that feeling, you know, that soak. And it's not to say that, you know, if you can't do it there and then, you're a failure. It's just you do it in your own time. I recognise my limitations, my capabilities, and I don't set those on anyone else. I try my best not to set those on anyone else because they haven't gone through experiences as I have, you know. And so my capabilities though may not be as strong or as, as whatever, as um, you know, as less as others. It, you've got to recognise that that's because... We're subjective in this world, you know. I see the this earth, this world as my own. And in no way, no chance can someone dictate what my world means, you know. If my perspective is that the sky today is red, no one can tell me my perspective is wrong. Whereas if we look mm. at the facts, then of course the sky is blue because it reflects off the ocean. But my perspective today is that I want the sky to be red and there's no way someone can tell me my perspective is wrong because it's my perspective. I'm living in this world. I, you know, I'm the star in my own story. And so I have to treat myself like the star, which means putting my health first, putting my mentality first, you know, putting I first because, and not them first, because they have their own world they're in, you know, they have their own earth they're in, have their own life to live. And yeah, um, so many lessons I could take up for an hour here. <laughs> but yeah. the point is, I spend a lot of time thinking and just, you know, working things out and trying to find the most important thing I believe in life is balance. Trying to find <clears throat> balance between fear and hope because I believe strongly that those two things are the wings of people's lives. You know, too much fear, you can't fly straight. Too much hope, you won't fly straight because the balance of the of your wings just won't, won't allow you to fly straight if they're not, you know, equal. So... Yeah, in do you ever talk to, I was going to ask do you ever talk do you ever talk to your your friends about like mental health and and therapy? It's something um, I've actually recently just got therapist. Um, I, had, I had the first one last week actually, and and I've dabbled with with therapy before, 
Um, I just don't think I ever had the right therapist and I think it's quite important to find the right person for you. Do you ever kind of speak about to your friends about mental health? Yeah, I speak to my friends about about it, yeah, and they speak to me as well, which I think is important to mention as well. They speak to me about it too. And I and I find that I find out that the reason they speak to me and they say it to me is because they see me do it and so they know or feel I can relate to them. But when then when I asked them about professional support, they're like, no, it's not for me. Mm. So it was about, you know, being real didn't really get me any further. Being relatable got me furthest. That's what it really was. Being relatable to people got me furthest than being real because real is subjective again. People's idea of real varies. And so being relatable was what got me further than being real. So when they when they people when my friends see relatability, yeah, they've come to me asking about mental health and they spoken to me about and I spoke to them about mental health equally. And I think I don't think so. I, I remember once being asked, does that feel like a burden that your friends now come and talk to you about mental health? And I said to them, Yeah, it does, but I'm not gonna complain about it. Because it's just like having nothing on my plate to having everything on my plate and still complaining. You know, what mm. what the what like, the complaining I think is would be a matter of self self selfishness because they've gone out of their way to see the relatability in me, then come and speak to me about it. But now I'm just sort of saying, go find support. You know? It it doesn't feel right to me. So yes, it is a burden. I'm not gonna take it away. I'm not gonna take away from that. But it's a burden I'm a, I'm willing to accept mm. because it just makes everyone else's life easier makes my own life my life easier as well because i get to understand my friends better i think it's so important i'd rather my friends i think paddy said it i'd rather my friend cry on my shoulder than having to like Mm. go to his funeral so yeah Yeah. i i I always try and get my friends to open up about it if i I can and um i find like like more so like i think guys now are coming more accepted to to mental health and like talking about it and getting therapy as well you know what I mean I I'm no expert I can't I've only recently like I said got got therapy so it's hard for me to to put my experience and I've dabbled a bit in the past but like I said I had someone who was just focused on CBT and I felt at the time that wasn't right for me because I had psychodynamics where you can like talk about it but they can also do CBT at the same time as well so it's it's kind of fine yeah I had CBT all all my years, so like from when I was in childhood and mental health, so since I was 15, I believe about 21, I had CBT and I had CBT from different services, so from CAMS, uh, psychiatric unit, early intervention service, so forth. Various therapists, I believe I had more than that, than fingers on my hand, um, therapists. And the question in that, that I get a lot is, was it better having a black therapist? than any other community purpose. I said, no, it wasn't. What was very, what was useful was having a mix because I learned and took notes from each one, you know, and that created my, that is what, that is what developed my open-mindedness, that idea of, and now I know there's always two views to one truth. There's always two perspectives to one story. You know, it made me understand that and that made me understand things as well. Like when you walk into a room and, you know, people are talking, once you walk in, they, they go quiet. It's not only that they're talking about you, they actually might be respecting you because they might be talking about something that is triggering for you or is private to someone else, you know? So having all those different therapists, those different perspectives, okay, some were more effective than others, fair enough, but they all taught me something. They all, they taught me cultural, uh, oh God, it's so bad as an anti-racism campaign to forget the word, cultural appropriation, cultural, I can't remember yeah, the word. I think that's right, yeah, cultural yeah, appropriation, they, yeah. Yeah, so they, they, you know, they taught me to consider, to always consider that, you know, nothing, nothing is only what you see in your view. There's always, there's perspective is impartial. There's 12 hours perspective. So it's quite yeah. daunting, isn't it? Pick it, picking a therapist. Cause I, I was doing mine through like beeper and literally there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. It's like, how the hell yeah. do you start? And like, it's just like, mm. I'm like, um, I've actually, I've got podcasts tomorrow and, 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 um, this guy's called Julian and he went from my homelessness to 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 going to boarding school and that completely changed wow. his whole life um wow. and he talks about like the struggles of like picking a therapist and like it is stressful isn't it like so it's quite it's quite interesting what you said like it's good to have a mixture so like you get different experiences in different point of view rather than having like a single point of view and like this is how you should think it's good to 
have a mixture like so that's maybe something i would look into maybe in the future right? yeah no but also yeah there's a thin line between also as well being overwhelmed with so many opinions so just yeah, yeah just be wary of that because yeah you know sometimes opinions can be can get conflicting and like I said before, if you, you can't recognise what to take out of an opinion or advice and everything is just literal to you, yeah, it might become more of a confliction than a bene- benef- beneficial. Um, and that's just, that's just that's to everyone who hears this, to be honest, not, not just to yourself, Dan. It's, you know, there's a thin line between the two, you know, having that mixed opinion and having it open your perspective and then having a mixed opinion and just really not really knowing what to do with the mixed opinion. So... It's always yeah good to just be cautious of that. Yeah, and I think for the last bit of the podcast, I, I really want to talk about obviously the campaign work you're doing for Hear Me Speak, um, and how that all kind of started off with your police incident at college. Could we talk about that experience and how that kind of yeah. led to the, the incredible work you do now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, you know, as I mentioned previously, um, there was uh, the moment where I had the med- anti-epileptic medication prescribed to me um and then my suicidal ideations became an actual plan um i i remember i walked out of my house and went and i wanted to make my way to college to still do the day of college before i i did my plan um but before i got to college i i remember walking halfway down my road and i called my child i'd listen mental health service i said to them you know something bad's gonna happen i just wanted you to know so when you find out you can explain to my parents, but I wanted I was I was trying to do the call anonymously, and at the time I thought it was me just trying to lessen the blow, but it was actually a very subtle cry for help. And I was going to ask that, yeah, because that was that was that yeah. like your last final kind of call, yeah. like before you did it. It right? was definitely, yeah, just exactly as you put it, it was that last final call, that you know, just if I don't know, it's just yeah, just that last final call of help because somewhere where 99% of my mind thought this was the right idea. I still had 1% of hope telling me, you know, that small voice telling me, no, you can get through it sort of thing. And I wanted that voice to be bigger than the voice telling me I couldn't. So, but I was ashamed. I was full of, full of shame. That's why I tried to do it anonymously and tried to deny the fact that it was a cry for help in the moment. But anyway, so, you know, I, as I said, I was trying to do it anonymously. So they, when they asked me my name, I was like, absolutely not. I didn't, I don't want you to know who I am. Um, just yet, and then they tried to ask other, the receptionist tried to ask other other um questions as well. You know what? Every time I tell this story, I actually neglect how helpful that receptionist was in all of this story. Like I don't even know her name, don't know nothing, nothing I've ever met with her again. But she was actually the one that really, really, really got me, kept me here because she didn't give up. She insisted. She was just like, okay, if it's not your name, then what about your address? And I'm like, no, not my address because that's too identifying. Say, okay, fine. What about your date of birth? And I, you know, me in that stage thought, yeah, there'll be plenty of people the same date of birth as me, you know, in the, in, the, in the service. So I gave her my date of birth and then I hung up. Fortunately, she done her work and she pinpointed who I was for my date of birth. Well, clearly, I was the only one with that date of birth. But she pinpointed who I was and she did the right thing in terms of contact. Well, I believe it was like contacting my um, psychiatrist at my um, college and... I remember being pulled out of class by um, a senior staff member and her asking me, you know, in her office, what's happened? We've gotten a call from cancer. Everything okay? And I was still playing it off, denying it, saying, oh, maybe I've just missed an appointment. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And she told me, you know, my brother was here to collect me and take me because they've asked me to come into the office. Yeah. And in the office, that's, you know, where I really as well recognised those hallucinations or all the hallucinations because as I always describe, it's like in a concert, the voices were loud loud and clear, you know, like you hear the performer in a concert, but so far away. But the people around me, my psychiatrist and my psychologist and my brother, who were so close to me, were like your friends in the concert who were shouting at you in your ears so you, just so they can hear you say um, a few words, just so you can hear them saying a few words, sorry. Mm. Um, and what I was hearing was to do it now, you know, your only opportunity would be now. So as my psychiatrist was asking me what was going on, I was reaching for the instrument I had in my bag that I planned to take my life with. That instrument was spotted by my brother and my brother was able to de-escalate the, the situation by, yeah, bringing me back to reality. He, he grabbed onto the instrument and told me if I wanted to hurt myself, I'd have to hurt him first. And anyone that has a suicidal plan 
doesn't want to take anyone else with them on that journey. You know, it's just, it's a plan for yourself, not anyone else to get hurt in, in, on the way. So that brought me back to reality. But what happened in that moment was police, emergency services were, were called. And because my brother was able to escape the situation without anyone getting hurt, especially myself, the ambulance were dismissed. But at this point, there were a bag of police officers outside the office and they were insisting that it became a criminal investigation. And they were that's insisting crazy, it became man. a criminal investigation because there was an instrument in the room with others. So now that to them was a matter of afraid, putting the lives of others at risk. And I remember there was this, this, this um, off sergeant or peace um, constable who came in and he said, you know, I can see what's going on. I can see you don't need to be arrested, but my sergeant on the radio is telling me you you need to be arrested because you're in the room with an instrument. And my psychiatrist and my brother were advocating to them, you know, we never felt at risk. We only felt he was at risk, so forth, so forth. But at the time being met, you know, that, that was just how it ended up. I was arrested for putting the lives of others at risk, although the plan was only to risk my own life, you know, I'd called cams, I'd been caught in it, I'd been found in a, psych, a psychiatric um, service. So, you know, all the signs were there, but because the lack of compassion I was showing, lack of understanding, it meant that they had to follow through with their guidance, which I, which was to take me to a police station, do some investigations, find out that, you know, there's nothing here that we can actually arrest him for, send him out with no further action, and then just get some police officers to escort him to a general hospital where he actually does need support after so many hours in the cell. Mm. And then on the way there, you know, I, I, I can't remember the officer's face. I just remember she was a female. Um, and she said to me, well, no one told you to pull out this instrument. And that was what, you know, really got to me because it was like... Frustrating, yeah. Yeah, you know, like you didn't really, you, you're just thinking of this, you're just seeing me as a young black male with an instrument, that's it. You know, you're not yeah. really giving any understanding to what went on. But, you know, that, that that experience meant that I held so much resentment um, whenever I saw police. I would always go into fight or fly. I'd get in so much trouble because I just couldn't stand seeing them, you know, operating from the way I was dealt with, treated, made to feel like a criminal before I was actually... I can imagine. I mean, how, how, how do you go about then transitioning? Not transitioning in regards to like channeling all this anger, frustration, resentment towards police into something positive and obviously using your experience now to kind of support others for obviously much better outcomes. It took many, many years, mm. many strength and a lot of thinking. Um, and that's mainly because when I would get in trouble with the police, you know, from that being in that fight or flight defensive mode every time something, you know, happened, Whenever I get in, in trouble with the police, I, I just noticed that my life was going downwards with this resentment. And I didn't want my life to continue going downwards because it had already been down. You know, I wanted to change it to going up. And going up meant some of these experiences I had to really challenge, you know. And so I initially wanted decided I wanted to work. I wanted to partner up with the police to better outcomes. And I did try to do these things before the campaign before thinking of a campaign. So when, at a time when Christina Dick was commissioner, I would send emails to the Met, off, to the Met, um, Met um, office and I actually sent emails to the mayor's office as well. And I was always redirected or diverted to other people or told that they had their own systems and stuff like that, which was, was, disen it was not encouraging. And, you know, it wasn't getting rid of that trauma in any way. It was just sort of increasing it. But I kept telling myself, you know, you won't win fighting against them. You won't win in a police cell. You won't change anything. The next mm. officer who deals with you won't know why you're talking to him in such a way. He won't know what you went through. And so it's about giving the opportunity, you know, to at least be heard first. And that's why we decided to come up with the campaign, hear me speak, but to be heard, to then be understood. You know, as I said on the video I did with the mayor, it's important to speak up, but it's also important to be heard and listened to. So, yeah, you know, after building foundation and resilience from advocating and campaigning um, and just building networks with different charities, I finally learned a way to do it more effectively, which was campaigning rather than just, here's Ant I'm Antonio, can you listen to me? I'm Antonio, can you listen to me? I'm trying to tell you something, I'm trying to teach you something. It's right, okay, well, let's do it 
in a different way. And I, for the years of campaigning, advocacy, the best thing I learned is what's the point in having a network you won't use, right? And so for this campaign, I specifically said to myself, go out there and reach out to your network, see what they can give you, what they can offer you. And so I reached out to all those individuals, those senior leaders I've met from my previous campaign, those charities I'd worked with at the beginning of my um, journey. And I just said to myself, just do it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Someone will tell you they can't offer support here. Someone can't help here. Don't be disheartened by it. Keep going till someone opens those doors to you. And ironically, that's what happened because people started to flesh out the idea with me. You started to put up a a jam board together with helps of others and charities as well were willing to sort of take on some of the load with, with, with research or whatever it might have been, contacts and so forth. And the main thing was that people respected that it didn't come from a rage background. Most campaigns, especially towards police, come from a rage. Whereas this mm. was, I just want you to hear me so I can help sort of thing, you know? I just want you to listen so I can offer you support mm. because... I don't believe any officer wakes up and decides to be evil to someone in a mental health crisis. It's a matter of both perspectives, the person going through the crisis and the police officer who I know lacked training in mental, mental dealing with mental health crisis, you know, didn't feel as confident dealing with mental health crisis because of the what backlash they might receive. And also that individual police officers are only following guidance, training and legis legislation set by those above them towards them so actually is it them i need to be addressing is it those above them that need to be setting the example so change trickles down so all of this you know put together i came up with hear me speak you know a campaign set to change the way guidance training is given to individual police forces within a um, um within a crisis and also legislation to reinforce the need for it because what I found was some only some forces seek the 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 input of those with lived experience. Some of some forces just use e-learning. So it was like it wasn't something mandatory. It was to their discretion. And you can imagine, you know, what some to this to their discretion can mean for someone's perspective of mental illness, especially if their perspective of mental illness is negative. Yeah. And it's like every every twelve minutes, which which really shocked me as well, that there's a mental health related call and an officer's sent, yeah. Yeah, and every six minutes, the officer is sent to a mental health related incident. So you know, you'd think with a with a, with a, a, a statistic like that, it'd be you'd be more of a priority to train your officers in mental health than just e learning, right? But I think I just I really just wanted to be the person who drove that confidence forward to speak up to authority figures, um, to really just knock on not just knock on the door but really bang on that door because i've been knocking for years now it's about actually you know i gave you opportunity to decide if you wanted to or not now i'm gonna to have to force you to listen and force you in a very in a respectful supportive way is yeah. what i kept saying to people you know I, i'm gonna to have to force people's hands but i'm gonna force them in a very supportive way which is you know some people actually like i said a lot of officers won't know the experience i went through and so encountering them without knowing what happened you they'll never understand to build compassion or understanding or you know to understand that this can also look like a mental illness this can also be a mental health crisis um, and yeah you know I, I, I found out as well sorry, sorry then I found out through that you know some of the connection between me and Met actually came through um, senior leaders and charities who were behind the scenes creating those connections for me and you know, reaching out to people saying, here's Antonio, he wants to help the police. I think that's so important, like getting your story out there and like getting it like within like the press as well um, and constantly get in front of people's eyes. Like, and I think that's incredible, obviously, kind of all the amazing work you're doing now. I mean, I've absolutely kind of really enjoyed this discussion, Antonio, today, and I feel like I've learned so much. If anyone wants to kind of follow your story, would you like to share your kind of Instagram and kind of your website on the podcast? Yeah, my my Instagram is um, just as my name, Antonio Ferreira, um, followed by underscore MH. Um, Twitter would just be, it's a bit complicated, that one, Anto D Neo. So instead of having the Antonio, you have dirt in the middle. That's only because D Antonio was taken when I signed up to Twitter. So I had to figure something out. And I put the, the T H E in between yeah. my name. 
But anyways, anyways, and then just yeah, my website, you know, www.antonioferro.co.uk is also my Hear Me Speak website, which is hearmespeak.co.uk. You know, I love for people to reach out to me on the Hear Me Speak website, especially with their own experiences of being in a, in a mental health crisis and being encountered with police officers. Yeah. You should definitely um, put like, um, I don't know if you've done this on your website, but like a testimonial page where people can share their experiences and you can share that so we, on your website. Yeah, we, do have, a page, yeah. we, we have a page where people can share their experiences. Um, they can also share it anonymously. But the point of that was to collect a bank of user experiences to be able to show that, you know, this isn't only a one person experience or even a two person experience. It is something mm. more coming than we know. And even, you know, I, I asked for experiences from, I have been asked for experiences from people with lived experience, but having now had more involvement with the Met, I actually understand the side of the police as well. So I'd, wel- I'd welcome um, police officers as well, ex-police officers' um, experiences on that on that page, on, on the website as well, just, you know, to understand. And I, and I have come to understand a bit that it isn't just individuals that need support. It's also the police officers yeah. who need support in terms of confidence, in knowing what to do and how to handle that situation because, you know, the last point I make, I promise, ultimately, this research that says, um, you know, emergency services staff hold higher stigma of mental illness than the general public because of the type of encounters they have, you know, they're always high tense, high risk, and they're never really involved in the solution. So, you know, it'd be grateful to have police involved in the solution too, but also not just handed over because I think that's what happened in that moment where the officer that was escorting me to hospital just said to me, no one told you to pull out this instrument. I think she didn't get told everything either because, you know, handover information gets lost in, in that process. But mm. there's so many things to work on. And, and it, it's, it's... Yeah, it's that kind of like dialogue and that that's, kind of communication. I just had a thought then, like, it might even be good, like, um, maybe later on down the line, if if you even did like an online course, which then the different kind of the police stations then can kind of watch. Um, yeah. So kind of really understand. I mean, there's so, there's so many avenues, but I mean, it's incredible obviously the work you're doing already with it and really excited to kind of, kind of see it grow and kind of raise more awareness and obviously kind of more importantly, kind of teach officers about the, the kind of mental health um, issues. No, thank you. I really, really do appreciate that. And yeah, and this is, it's, it's also been a lovely conversation from my part and, just, yeah, I mean, I just want to, because I mentioned Hear Me Speak, I just want to also just shout out to Beyond, because they, they're they official supporters of the campaign, um, the Youth Mental Health Charity Beyond, and also the Metropolitan Police, just for being so receptive to the campaign. You know, with them, I've been able to create a, a training video based on my experience for them to show new recruits and also share my experience, um, uh, presenting my experience to some of their new recruits on their training day. So it's been a really great, um, journey and campaign um, and yeah with the support of everyone that was involved from the beginning to the end no that I mean that's amazing and like I say I think the way from the experience of you've learned and and the way you're you're going about it you know what I mean if what happened is awful if you come at it from an anger point of view sometimes it doesn't resonate or it, it's not gonna relate so it's great that obviously you you've you saw that and you've come at it from a different angle where they're on more understanding and it gives you that opportunity to still kind of raise awareness and get your points across it thank you Dad.